Today, in this giving season, I ask your support for Ag Arts. In the past, your donations have paid for our producer and manager, our rent and utilities, our computer website, and postage. They support this podcast and our two Substack pages, including our young, diverse writers on Mary Swander's Emerging Voices. They also fund our very important farm residencies with stipends for the farmers and the artists. AgArts needs your help to continue to bridge the urban-rural divide by bringing artists and farmers together, allowing each to better understand the landscape of the other. Today, I'm pleased to speak with Renee Hansen. She is the author of a new book called Watershed, Attending to Body and Earth in Distress, winner of the Minnesota Book Award. Renee Hansen is an educator, having taught writing and global studies for 30 years at Minneapolis College, and she is a committed climate activist. She is a member of Climate Land Leaders based in the Twin Cities. Susan Griffin writes these words about Watershed. In a direct and often wise voice, through a series of moving, revealing, and entertaining stories, Watershed makes clear the connection between climate change and our own bodies. We're happy to connect with Renee Hansen. So I thoroughly enjoyed this book. It's an enlightening, it's a disturbing book. It's a book that at the same time gives us comfort. I I thought you did a beautiful job of weaving all three of those elements together. And I'd like to start our interview with you reading page one, Spring. Yeah, that comes from chapter one called Where Waters Divide. Spring. Each child's fate is linked to that of its natal watershed. On a late May day, my mom finished planting her garden next to the small trailer where she and dad lived, just south of Lake Bemidji. The Mississippi headwaters begin at Lake Itasca, flow north into Lake Bemidji, then meander south toward the Gulf of Mexico. 30 miles north of Bemidji, as far north as Itasca is south, lies Red Lake, home waters for the Red Lake Nation of the Ojibwa. Red Lake lets out to join the Red River, which flows north toward Lake Winnipeg, and then to the Nelson River and on to Hudson Bay. When Mom stood up to walk toward the house Dad was building, her water broke. I came into a land fed by rain and by snow, a land of swamps where two great river systems begin their journeys, one flowing north and one flowing south. Your mother's water breaking to me was a metaphor for the whole book of the water in our watersheds, in our country, in our world is breaking. But this first section of the book is about you growing up near the boundary waters. And you have a fascinating, totally amazing childhood And you live it in relationship to the water, to the rivers, to the 
you know, what was then a pristine environment. Could you talk about that a little bit? My early childhood was in northwestern Minnesota, the Bemidji area more. But my dad was a teacher, and his back wasn't strong enough to inherit the farm. So he turned the farm down. It's a big deal, actually. And he got a teaching job, teaching industrial arts, on the Iron Range near Ely. Most people know Ely. Our town is actually Babbitt, a very different kind of town than Ely. But we we moved to the lake between the two of them. Um the lake is Birch Lake. It flows into the Kawishwa River, and it's at the heart right now of the sulfite mining controversy. So that's where most, how most people right now in Minnesota locate us is boundary waters and mining. <clears throat> that's true. Um, but, you know, I didn't know that other people didn't live like we did. I thought that everybody just picked berries from the woods, and we heated our house with down trees that we dragged out of the woods and chopped up. And um, we we did have other needs. My uncle planted one field without spraying it because my parents were early Rachel Carson, um, Gaylord Hauser, you know, kind of health food fanatics, they were called. So they they asked my uncle if he'd please plant some wheat for us. And he planted a field, and we got that wheat, and it hadn't been sprayed, and we ground it and made our own bread. And we had uh, friends who had cows. I think they were Guernseys. Um, gave wonderful, rich milk, so we made our own cream. And did most of our own baking. We'd order peaches and stuff and can that. Did a lot of canning. Mom and Dad uh, got a good garden growing there on the soil in the North Woods. They had to import a lot of fertilizer from my uncle's farm. I mean, manure, fertilizer, that kind. Um, but they were pretty committed to organic means, and it grew well. So we mostly fed ourselves and warmed ourselves. And um, Dad built the house, but we helped. I was the oldest, so I took care of the other kids. I didn't do so much helping as is and building rock walls and the like. You were the first girl to learn to drive the tractor, as I recall. I was the first girl, and I did not learn to drive tractor because Grandpa instead gave me the history of the family and why we were called heathen in Denmark. And, and he didn't have me drive tractor. And this is, I'm going to add a little side note. I wrote in the book, I never learned to drive tractor. And the editors kept adding in an A. I finally gave up and added the A. But farmers in Minnesota know that you drive tractor. You don't drive a tractor. And it, I, when I read that, I, I leave the A out. Um, so I learned how to say it, but I didn't learn how to do it until my brother decided it was time I quit saying I didn't know how and made me drive his tractor. Um, so we, we went summers, we'd go back to the farm. So I have that farm history and my grandparents came from Iowa. So more your country. Yeah. Um, grandpa wasn't the oldest, so that was probably why he had to go and find a new homestead. Right. Um, but we were, we grew up as woods people and canoed. From our lake, you can canoe into the Kawishwa and then right into the Boundary Waters. It wasn't Boundary Waters when I was young. It was right. just wilderness, and we could come and go freely. 
not so now. And now you've begun to notice changes in those waters in that area. Yeah, when we when I was young, we would camp in the boundary waters and we'd drink out of the lakes. Wow. Um, that ceased. I, I don't know. My brother would remember what decade before the two thousands, like way back. Seventies, mm-hmm. eighties, um, probably seventies. I'd bet. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to go in the woods and we'd get ticks, but we just you know pull them off. They were the big ticks. Now we get deer ticks, and it's worse. Um, that's bad, bad tick diseases. Um, I started noticing the the pines suffering and the birches suffering uh, in the well. In the eighties was when there was a first big drought that mm-hmm. made me start searching for what was going on, and that's when I learned about climate change. So that was that was the huge shock for me. And then combining that with my students, who were often climate refugees, even starting then, um, I had two things coming at me with climate. One was my students, and the other was watching my woods. Northern Minnesota has lost a lot of winter. It has heated up far faster than southern Minnesota. I think faster than Iowa, but I haven't yet done the Iowa research. But you, if, if you're an old-timer, in the northern part of the state, especially the northeast, you know that this is not right winter. (laughs) And that was very disturbing to me. And then you leapt into your adult life and got hit with, as an adult, type 1 diabetes at 64. We usually think of that as, you know, something that people have as children, discover as children or you know, really early in in life. And so tell us about that experience. It was really, really rough. It was yeah. rough, partly because I didn't know it was possible. So okay. part of my reason for talking about it so openly, I'm an in-your-face diabetic, if you've ever met one, um, is so that people know. Because the oldest person I've heard of to become type 1 suddenly was 99. So nobody's got a pass. Um, and my symptoms were clear, kind of. I was thirsty all the time. I was peeing all the time. I lost weight. Other things were symptoms that I didn't recognize. Like I could see without my glasses. I could see my students' faces. That was lovely, but it meant my eyeballs were drying out and I would go blind eventually. So anyway, I did not talk about it because... I looked online, it said diabetes, but I'd never been pre-diabetic. And I had this notion that you had to be pre-diabetic first, you know, that you'd get a chance, then you could fix everything, and then you'd be fine. But it doesn't go like that. And I also had been warned by my friends that if I kept talking about climate disruption, I would make myself sick. Um, at the that summer, was a spring, it was March, uh, February, March, There was drought in Brazil, where my brother was working on water issues, in Seattle, where I was visiting my son and daughter-in-law, and I was freaked by the drought, and I assumed that I was psychopathologizing myself into thirst, and that's why I was thirsty all the time. So I tried to make myself stop thinking about drought. Um, Didn't work. 
Uh, so it wasn't until I realized that I, there was no way I could go and teach when I, I was taking the train back and forth. So I took the train back from Seattle. I was so sick on that train ride. But it wasn't until I got home and fell asleep for a while and then woke up and thought, I cannot teach tomorrow, that I, I went to um, urgent care and from there to ICU, uh, which was lucky. If I had not woken up from that nap, it would not have been a good deal. Because um, I was in DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, in bad shape. Fortunately, it happened to me quickly enough that I didn't do any permanent damage that anybody's been able to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and they put me on insulin. I wasn't taking any meds at that point, and I didn't want to, but, you know, it was die or take insulin, which is really right. the choice. Well. Thank God for insulin. One of the things that struck me after you were released from the hospital, you weren't in the hospital very long, and then they just discharged, yeah, they just discharged you with this overwhelming management situation that diabetics have. It's a lot to do and a lot to deal with, and you were sent home with what an instruction sheet, and uh, it's a really interesting chapter in the book. While you're trying to regulate everything and get on hotlines and and get your body to calm down, you want to talk about that a little bit. And I want to first say that I had it easy. I have a cousin who became diabetic at about eleven in the sixties. And I asked him how he learned to do this. He said, oh, they just, they showed me how to give a shot in a big old orange. And then they sent me home. And he had to boil needles. He was 11 years old. And nobody helped him. He was a farm boy. Um, so, so we will put that in context. I was really lucky. But I still didn't know how to do it. They had shown me how to prick my fingers. I couldn't figure out how to run the machine. Uh, it's, it's it's just it's a simple little plastic thing, but I could not do it. But you're in really, I'd been very sick for a couple months. I'd just come out of ICU. Everything was new. I couldn't remember the name of insulin. I didn't know which was the pen and which was the, you know, the thing to prick my fingers. It was so confusing, and I lived alone. I remember the nurse said to me as I was leaving, well, if you ever, if your blood sugar goes so low that you're unconscious, just have somebody mix these two, these two um, substances together and give you a shot in the leg. And I said, that's when I'm unconscious? And like, who? She said, you live alone? I said, yeah. She said, well, maybe a neighbor. <laughs> so I was wondering like, yeah, I'm going to call a neighbor once I'm unconscious, it just like wasn't going to work. It gets easier. Let me tell you all, it gets easier, but you got to really stay on it. It was yeah. intense. And one of the things that struck me was the whole time you're trying to cope with the management of this, you're also thinking of the environmental implications of what you have and what you're doing. What did that entail? Well, it first was the uh, the moment in the hospital when they told me I'd have to take insulin every day. And I asked if they could just give me a lot then and be done with it. And he said, no, 
And they asked if that was upsetting to me. And I said, well, I always thought I could go away to the woods and be fine on my own. And this has been part of my crisis management plan. You know, I'm, I'm a camper kid. I was, at least. And I thought I could go into the Boundary Waters and just kind of disappear. Well, not if I need insulin and supplies. Anyway, the doctor came back and said, well, we've got some good news for you. If you find a cool, deep lake and put your insulin in a waterproof thing at the bottom of the lake, you can stay in the woods for three months. You need a three-month supply of insulin. And I thought, yeah, right, if I keep my lake cool. And I thought of all the people who cannot keep their water cool and the fact that the my water is heating up. Yeah. Um, I also was in DKA, and my mouth felt, it was, it was like iron. I didn't know. I didn't know whether it was acidic or alkaline before I went to the hospital. I found out it was acidic, and it really tasted like iron. And then I associated with the ocean, which is acidified. And I, I, I don't know what it tastes like to the whales. Um, so it was really sobering to think of my body as, a, as an example of the earth of what's mm-hmm. happening and the um my beta cells died and once one piece of you dies the, they're the ones that make insulin and mine are dead and once that happens it's a cascade so we lose one piece of the ecosystem and it cascades and this it seemed to me that people were thinking like Minnesota a little warmer would be nice that's how a lot of people approached global warming when it was called that. And I'd try to say, actually, it won't be nice because all our trees will die. But they just think, I'll, I don't know who they are. I don't like using that word. But some people seem to think, I'll just not need such a warm coat. It'll be more pleasant. And I really wanted to, I thought that maybe showing what happens with a body when one part wax out would help people visualize what happens to the earth. I also know that if it had been 100 years earlier, no one would have known that I could become diabetic at that age, and there would have been no insulin for me, um, and I would have died. And I probably had ancestors who became late-onset type 1, because I found out later that I was, I'm the 10th, Ninth or tenth, in my um, since my grandmother's family, but nobody told me that because it was a shame to be diabetic. So you didn't tell anybody. Sure. But they're really all type one, and they somebody should have told me. So, but I didn't know, and there wouldn't have been insulin. But the fact that insulin was developed and it was a really hard process. Gave me some hope for the acidification of the ocean. I know we need a really big insulin pen for the ocean. But but if we work on it, the way they worked on saving all those diabetic children, you know, we could figure this out. We just have to really work on it. The story you give in the book is um, Frederick Banting's story of trying to isolate insulin and then prove that 
it would work. And these kind of medical pioneers just are, they go through such trials to try to make their point. And the, and, uh, the historian Dan Hurley says, what Banting had going for him was desperation. And so you relate that to how we can be witnesses to climate change and feel that desperation, but act on it, take action on it. And partly, I had to decide whether I was willing to take insulin. That might sound like a no-brainer, but I was 64, which is a good long life. And I know children who don't have insulin. And um, it seemed like a decision should be made here instead of it just being an automatic. And I do feel like I got an extra life, and I kind of owe back. And I've, I figured that I needed every year possible to work on this climate problem. It's not the only one. Justice, the climate justice is, a, is really where it's coming down. I mean, eventually it comes down on everybody, but we start with the other creatures and the humans who have done least to cause this problem uh, as the ones impacted. And um, it feels like I owe it for all these benefits I've gotten. Right. And you talk about how not only are you a metaphor or a symbol f for climate change and with dealing with your illness, but climate change will make your illness worse because you'll be heat sensitive. And then uh, you talk about other illnesses that climate change is making worse, like Lyme's disease. Yeah, I got anaplasmosis, which is another tick disease during the first year of COVID. thought I had COVID because it, it mimics that. It's like malaria of the north. It's a tick disease. We never had it before, but suddenly I got it. And climate change also makes things worse in another way that people may not think of. I now am on an insulin pump and a sensor, and I need a new transmitter within, I think it's now 20 days. And it's on order, but it's not coming. And last time there was... a. Uh, hurricane in Puerto Rico. My pump yeah. supplies were also back-ordered. So I'm assuming that the problem is they're made there. And, and I don't care. I mean, I should not complain. But what are people in Puerto Rico and in Pakistan doing to keep their insulin safe? If it, Well, they probably... Speaking of yeah, speaking of people around the world coping with these situations, you're teaching global studies in the Twin Cities, and you were surrounded. There's another layer to this book. You were surrounded by your students, many of which were refugees, climate change refugees. And what were they encountering? Yeah, and they don't generally identify as climate refugees, <clears throat> not the younger ones. They're coming for food, to save their lives, <clears throat> um, violence. But I had the privilege of talking, listening to the elders, and the elders from Somalia were very clear that the 
crisis did not start with intertribal fighting. It started with drought, years of drought. And that then they brought their herds to the one green spot they could find. And everybody's herds were there. And there wasn't anything for all the herds to eat. So as this elder said to a group of us, we're not proud of it, but what would you do if your children were starving? We fought. And um, that wasn't what I learned from the newspapers at the time. I thought that they just were, this is awful, but let me tell you, I thought they were people who couldn't get along with each other. And so they were fighting each other for that. Well, no, that isn't the case. And then as I um, talked to the students from Mexico, South America, Central America, Mongolia, Bangladesh, um, yeah, almost all of them, the story's the same. The snows stopped coming. The glacier retreated. There was no water, uh, or or those from like Southeast Asia, like Vietnam, the ocean was encroaching on the fresh water and killing the fish that the family farm was raising because they were raising freshwater fish. They don't want to eat the saltwater fish because they're too too polluted. But when the salt came in, it destroyed the freshwater f- fish farms. Um. My Afghani student who talked about the the family that had lived in this beautiful village, but then there were no spring melt was no spring melt off. So they had to move to Mogadishu. And this wasn't what I was hearing in the news. Right. But this is what my students would tell me. Some of the younger students, second, two and a half, three generations, would not know this. And I I would um I would ask them to interview their elders because it it's hard. The generational divides start happening so quickly. The language gets lost and the elders probably get tired of, of nobody being interested. So that was really uh, another wake up for me. And then a significant part of writing the book was that I was wanting my students' stories to get out in the world. Such a privilege I had of being in Minneapolis College and hearing these. Besides global studies, I taught um, entry-level writing. And most writers first have to write their trauma story. So those would be the stories I would get. You know, like 50 of them a semester. It just is a kind of a deluge. Um, not only those, but you know, that was a big portion of them. And I would say, you people have to hear your stories. And the students started coming back to me saying, you've got privilege we don't have yet. It's going to take us too long. Professor Renee, you got to tell our stories. You got to do it for us because they're not listening to us, but you know people. <laughs> and I had set aside writing thinking that their stories were much more needed, which I still think they are. Um, But I picked it up partly on that call. Wonderful. Well, they're very vivid and powerful in the book. Then you also taught ecofeminism, and you had an exercise with a tree. Tell us about that. Yeah, the students had to keep a journal, 
and ecofeminism. And one of the things they had to do, there were a number of them that they needed to, like practices, disciplines they needed to maintain over the semester. They were pretty easy, it looked like to them. One was to pick a tree and to spend time with it each week. Um, a significant amount of time and write about what happened. And they would think, this is going to be so boring. What, which tree and what am I supposed to do? And you want me to like write about its bark? They'd have all these questions. I said, I don't care. You just go be by the tree. Sit by the tree, take out your earbuds, be with the tree. And I had, I can't tell you how many students come back at the end of the semester saying that was the most important thing I did in all my classes, all semester. Um, one student who was this gorgeously tattooed black student who rode her bike everywhere um, said, you know what? I always thought trees were scenery. They are not scenery. You have to get to know a tree. Every tree is different. She, she just became a wonderful um, prophet of tree differentiation. And it was, it was lovely. I didn't have to do anything. The trees did it all. Uh, that, that was very interesting assignment. I, and I love the line in the book. You said the students were like, this is not something I should be doing in college, sitting beside a tree. <laughs> Let's have you read again from page 167. This is when the system goes down. I asked a diabetes nurse educator, if the system were to collapse, what am I to do? She like, looked at me blankly. For example, I said, if I were living in Syria right now, her look grew puzzled. You'd go to the nearest emergency room. And I, I hope people laugh. In Syria, I said. Later, I asked a different nurse to educate her the same question. She nodded. Before insulin, people stayed alive for some time on diets of protein and vegetables with very little carbohydrate, she told me. You wouldn't live long, but you could live a while. Soon after, I asked my endocrinologist. She looked at me flatly and replied, Remember how you felt before you came to the ICU? Yes, I do, I said. You'd feel like that, she told me. You would live for maybe four hours, maybe two days. It isn't a painful death. You'd go to sleep. Your heart would stop. Two days, not many. But the system isn't likely to go down, she said. Which is just so shocking to hear. That was a passage that gripped me. I thought, you know, you're being the realist, projecting into the future, and, and then everywhere along the road, as you're questioning, you'd get denial. You know, that, that endocrinologist was pregnant and with her husband in Hawaii when there was that... Um, a possible nuclear right. bomb alert. Right. Um, <clears throat> that was a couple years later. And when I went to see her, she told me that and said that, I mean, it was like she got it then. Mm, okay. And she told me that she and her husband just sat down together and breathed together as they waited. So you have to have a personal experience of... But I'd like people not to dis just dismiss others 
when they ask that question, right. especially young people. Young people right. are knowing, are wondering this. And if they ask us older people, I think we've got to take it seriously. Right. And you're taking it seriously, I know, with your work with the climate land leaders, uh, who are a group of farmers, landowners, people interested in the land and addressing climate change in all aspects of land management. So how did you get connected with that group and what are you, what are what are some of the things you're learning there or doing? I think that Teresa Opheim, oh I know she found me through the women's Minnesota Women's Net um women's press because <clears throat> I did with Mickey Morissette there uh some work based on the work on the book. I'd worked with them before, but then I did that again and then she got that article. I was working across the um, rural range, urban divide in Minnesota, which is ridiculous and strong. And that was another motivation for writing the book is that my relatives and friends are all outstate and my community and college is in the city and my environmentalist friends and my farmer and miner family and friends just do not talk to each other. And they both say not not so exactly true things about each other mm-hmm. and even about their own positions. So I'd like to get more nuanced conversation going. And it was out of that that I started talking with climate land leaders. Um, and they've been great for teaching me more about farming. And I've, I've gone on farm tours and listening on their podcasts and Part of it is that I can help people tell their stories, I think, and I can carry stories between um, diverse groups. At least, that's what I would like to do. And um, at first, I didn't know why they were willing to let me. I I have less than an acre of land up by the Boundary Waters. It's lakeshore and woods. And so I didn't know why they were letting me be with them because they've got land, but it's wonderful conversations we have. Um, and then I have begun with them to think about my inheritance. Um, the book is about that, how I learned very slowly and and not through my formal education that I was living on Ojibwe land and later on Dakota land. Um, shocking that I didn't just know that. My grandpa homesteaded uh, Ojibwe land that probably was never seeded, even, not even, you know, forcefully taken, but just taken by the government. And grandpa didn't know that. I don't think he knew that. Um, He wasn't a bad guy. Some things I think he did wrong, but... He was he was doing what his government and his whole culture told him was right. right. And he fenced the land so the Ojibwe could not get between their fishing fields and their berry fields. And he killed the animals um, so they wouldn't eat his crops. And he plowed into the earth 
and ruined his hands doing it. I mean, he worked really hard. This is a painful history. Mm-hmm. But I think we have to face it without just um, without just demonizing Grandpa and the others. What do I do now? Um, as I speak with farmers and landowners in, I don't know what we call it, outstate greater Minnesota, uh, this is a question that keeps coming up. How do we deal? How do we settler descendants deal with our disinheritance, our intruder status, knowing that we're really connected to the earth, the land that we live on. And we really all do also have indigenous roots, but we we got ranched from them. And many of us got ranched from the earth itself. So I was lucky that I I grew up in the woods and on the water, so that mostly I learned a lot directly from the land. Um, but I would have learned more if my parents and ancestors had asked the Ojibwa some questions mm-hmm. and, like, been their friends. No, exactly. And you, you quote Winona LaDuke several times in the book, and at one point, she says, we try to tell people that indigenous viewpoint is everything is alive and everything is connected to everything else. And I stopped there in the book and I thought, yeah, that's what, you know, the white people are disconnected from. That's exactly the split. And it's only now that we're regaining that consciousness and I think a group like Climate Land Leaders is one force that's helping raise that awareness in people. And I also want to say that we, it's too broad to say that we're disconnected from that and that white people are because our ancestors haven't always been and right, no right. one of us needs to be. I was taught by an old Norwegian woman once that I needed to learn more about my spinacita, the mm-hmm. side of the spinners, the women's side of history. And um, I'm exploring that more. And the, 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 um, the, I had a dream about my mother where my mom was this, you know, I told you, um, early hippie, um, food fattest. She wouldn't use sprays, and she ground her own wheat and stuff. And I had a dream about her where she was standing at the sink, and I asked her, this is after she died, asked her what she was doing, and she turned to me, and she's just glowing, and she said, I'm doing what we women have always done. I'm making a potion. And it's that stread. You know, she thought that she could find the right thing in her garden to cure any disease. She was wrong, but... Well, that's the wise woman tradition, and... Yeah, I mean, and that's something that that we have been disconnected from. Yes, yeah. and then we lost. My um, grandpa came from Norway. My great grandma came from Sweden, and she lost all of her native herbs. Mm-hmm. But what if she had gone to talk to the Ojibwa and learn mm-hmm. about the herbs here? Oh, different different cultures, different cultures 
did that. Like I live in the middle of the Amish settlement here in Iowa and the Amish and the uh, indigenous people had a real communication about herbs. They had a give and take. They taught it. They taught each other different herbal uh, remedies. It's, it's fascinating. And not only the herbs, but they each had chants and rituals that went with the he the healing event. Right. I mean, it, it, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Okay. This has really been a wonderful conversation. I thought maybe we could end this with you reading the coda. Life Principles of the Ojibwe People Indigenous to Northern Minnesota Watersheds. And decades ago, when Winona brought this to Minneapolis College, she said that it was what she found in the Indigenous Women's Network globally to be basically the same for all Indigenous cultures. It starts with the way things are in nature are the way things ought to be. Life moves in cycles and ought to move in cycles. And I hope that when people read these, they think about that, like that death is right. Death is how it happens in nature, and it's right. And winter ought to come after fall. Nearly everything is alive, including the flowing people like the Gulf Stream, and the North Wind, and the rock people and the standing people, like the mountains. We are all one family, all of us. All that lives has standing, even to the furthest generations. And standing means that you have a right to a say in a decision. So you need to have the furthest generations, both directions, represented. And all of those members of our living family, the, the winged people and the crawling people and the, all the people. We should take what we need and leave the rest. So you take the blueberries you need this year, maybe a few to give to your neighbors, and then you leave for the bear and next year. When we take, we must give. Traditionally, tobacco, sage will do. Uh, and, and that, I would stop with my students, and I'm going to stop with you and say, if you eat a lot, you really have to shit. And it should be good shit, so that it can go on the earth, because you took it from the earth. So try to keep it clean. Um, the good life leads to continual rebirth. And the story of Jumping Mouse is a great one there, if you want to. like, um, If you look at your hand... You know, it's made up of lettuce and carrots and probably chicken. All kinds of things went in to make your hand. So live worthy of them because they're living again in you. Well, this has been a delight, Renee Hansen, with talking with your, about your book called Watershed, Attending to Body and Earth in Distress. Thank you so much. I hope we get to talk again sometime soon. It's been a delight.
I am now part of the Iowa Writers Collaborative, joining the ranks of Pulitzer Prize winner Art Cullen, Douglas Burns, Julie Gamak, Bob Leonard, Laura Bellin, and more fabulous writers. The Collaborative is a network of Substack pages, each writer in his or her own realm, but all linked together. I have created two Substack pages. On the first page, Mary Swander's Buggyland, you will get transcripts of Buggyland monologues and interviews, photos, and extra commentaries. On the second page, called Mary Swander's Emerging Voices, you will hear young, diverse voices comment on current topics. Please tune in and subscribe at substack.com, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. And that brings our episode to an end. We were produced by Rick Brewer of Brew Ha Ha Audio Productions in our studios on Main Street in sunny Fremartentown. We had support today and would like to thank the Cinepid Fund, the Iowa Arts Council, the Werner Ellithorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation, and the Calio Levine Fund, and all of you who have sent us individual private donations. We welcome your support. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe and never miss a podcast. Become a member or simply go to our website, agarts.org, and hit that red donation button. See you next time.